Hey, Deserving Listeners, today I'm going to answer patron emails. I've been getting a lot of emails from patrons asking me to talk about the multiracial status or being mixed race or mixed, mixed ethnicity, and particularly about HAPA or HAPA. So I, if you don't know, am half Japanese American and half European American. My European ancestors generally came over during the 16, 17, and 1800s and eventually found their way to Kansas and then Spokane, Washington, and my Japanese ancestors came over about 120 years ago to Washington State, and I come from a long line of farmers on both sides of my family. And uh, so I am half Japanese-American and half European-American, with a, a, a good percentage of Welsh and, and Swedish people in, in, my, in my ancestry, Quakers on the Welsh side. Anyway... So uh, I am called Hapa or Hapa. So some people say Hapa and some people say Hapa. Where does that word come from? It comes from a Hawaiian word. Basically, from my understanding, it was uh, adopted by Hawaiians from the word half. And they, you know, sort of altered the word to Hapa. And instead of it meaning half, it means part. And so... They, in Hawaii, they might say, you know, hapahaoli, which is half or part white or something like that. And so the Hawaiian word has been adopted by a lot of mixed race uh, Asian, East Asian people throughout uh, the United States and beyond. And uh, when I was a kid, it was used very infrequently and hardly anyone understood what that meant. But as there are increasingly more and more Americans who are Hapa or Hapa, there are more people identifying with it. So patron Emma wrote in from San Jose, writing, I am half Asian and half white. It's a complicated experience. I feel like most discussion around race either ignores multiracial people altogether, lumps them in with one side, or assumes that you can get just average out or assumes that you can just average out the experiences of both sides. None of these viewpoints seem complete to me since I think being multiracial is its own unique experience. End of email. Yeah, being mixed is its own unique experience. And there's so much to say about this. And I've talked about this from various different angles. But uh, in brief, what I'll say at the beginning is that there's a subreddit for HAPA people. So you can check that out. I did an, uh, an interview for hapamag.com, hapamag.com, and I don't know if that's released yet, but um, you can check that out. They also did a interview with um, Apollo Ono, if, if you're familiar with the Olympic uh, speed skater. Yeah, so mixed-race people are totally ignored. Um, and I am going to be talking mainly about... so. HAPA have, has been uh, extended to various groups, but I'm, I'm mainly going to focus on East Asian HAPA people. So you could be part Korean and part Black American. You could be part Japanese and part Spanish American. You could be part Hawaiian and part Filipino and part Spanish colonialist and part... Jewish and part, you know, German, and all those are traditionally what we're going to say is what a hapa is. In Hawaii, if you don't know, it's the only place where I feel at home, by the way, because it's the only place where mixed race people dominate. 
when I walk around in Hawaii, I feel like I fit in in a way that I don't fit in anywhere else. When I walk around among white people, I am constantly aware of the fact that I'm not entirely white. And when I hang out with all pure Asians, I realize that I am part white. And so when I'm in Hawaii, which has had a long tradition of uh, the mixing of different ethnicities for hundreds of years, there is just a lot of mixed. It's not uncommon to find people in Hawaii who are who are like, well, I'm I'm Filipino, I'm Japanese, I'm Chinese. I'm white American. I am also part native Hawaiian. And it's, it's the, a dominant ethnicity is to be mixed in, in Hawaii. But anyway, and that's where the word comes from. But anyway, yeah, it's totally ignored to, to, for, uh, people to be recognized as East Asian Hapa. For example, I always love to pull out these names. So Tiger Woods, when you think of Tiger Woods, a lot of people think, oh, he's black, right? He's a, he's a black golfer. Well, certainly that's one way of looking at it, but he is technically more East Asian than he is black. So let, let that sink in for a second. Tiger Woods identifies, he also identifies this way, but blood-wise, DNA-wise, he, if he took a DNA test, his dominant uh, genetic ancestry would be East Asian, so when we talk about Tiger Woods, do we call him a black golfer or do we call him an, an Asian American golfer? Well, most people call him a black golfer. Why is that? Now, people are free to, you know, Tiger Woods is free to identify as he wants to. And he actually has come out uh, with some complicated words for how he identifies. But so that's just one example of how in America, if you are one-eighth black or you look black, all other ethnicities are ignored. Like Barack Obama, he is considered a black president. Well, he's half white. Now, I'm not claiming that we should call him a white president, but he's mixed race. He has a, he has a stark white mother. And so, uh, you know, what do we, what do we, the fact that he's Hapa, the, and he grew up in Indonesia, by the way, he has a pretty strong, I think it was Indonesia, he has a, I think one of his stepfathers was uh, East Asian. And, you know, he, gr- he knows a lot about Hawaii. He knows a lot about Spam Musubi. <laughs> and so, you know, in terms of culture, he knows a lot about East Asian culture. But anyway, my point is, is that, um, well, let's move on here. So Keanu Reeves, for example, part Asian. This, this one's interesting. Lou Diamond Phillips, if you're familiar from the old days, he, he was in La Bamba, right? So Lou Diamond Phillips usually plays Hispanic people, uh, Latino characters in movies, sometimes a Native American character. He is half Filipino. Lou Diamond Phillips almost always gets you know, cast as a Hispanic person or a Native American person. He's half Asian, half Filipino, which is a whole other topic is Filipinos tend to be ignored even more than if you're Japanese, Korean, or Chinese. Filipinos, there's a, a lot of Filipinos. I can't remember the stats, but I remember uh, learning, you know, looking at the stats and of Asian Americans in Seattle, like mo- the biggest group is Filipinos. And yet Filipinos, because they're generally considered um, a lesser Asian country by, by Asian, you know, like Japanese people look down on Filipino people. Chinese people, Korean people look down on Filipino people. And so 
uh, it, so that is transferred over to the United States, uh, generally speaking, of course. Um, Eddie Van Halen, part Indonesian. Bruno Mars, this is the big one. You ask people on the street, what ethnicity is Bruno Mars? They're going to be like, oh, he's black. Nope, half Filipino. <laughs> now, when you drill down on what half Filipino means for Lou Diamond Phillips and Bruno Mars um, and Tiger Woods, you know, being East Asian, it, it gets kind of complicated because the Philippines was, uh, you know, colonized by Spanish people. And so there's a, there's a mixture of, of Spanish blood, white Spanish blood in a lot of Filipinos. But the point is, is that I don't think many people think Bruno Mars is an, is an Asian American. I don't think Lou Diamond Phillips is considered an Asian American. I don't think Eddie Van Halen is considered an Asian American. I don't think people look at Tiger Woods and Keanu Reeves and think Asian American. So being half, either you, it just gets erased, like with Keanu Reeves. People just think of Keanu Reeves as, as a white person, generally speaking, or, or Eddie Van Halen. Or it just gets uh, lost in the mix. It's just like, well, you look like you're... Hispanic, so we're going to call you Hispanic. Or if you have black also um, with, you know, in your ancestry, then we're just going to call you black. Now, is this a big deal? Well, you know, we could debate it. It, it depends. But it is part of a general trend of East Asian Americans being completely ignored. The thing that I always like to bring up is something like 6% of American citizens are East Asian descent, at least part. And how many East Asian heroes do you know in the Marvel Universe? There's one. And she's not technically East Asian. She is an alien. She's in, you know, the Guardians of the Galaxy. She's played by an East Asian American uh, actress, but she plays an alien, which should give you another sort of realization that East Asians are, are still considered to be foreign uh, alien, weird individuals, even though uh, we have lived in this country for, uh, you know, generations and have built, you know, participated in building this country just like everyone else. And yet we're still considered foreigners. Every time an, an Asian character on a TV show opens their mouth, I cringe at hoping that they're not going to have an accent. Not that having an accent is a bad thing, but like, well, I'm rambling. I hope, I hope you get my... Let's go on with another email here. Laura says, I have a mixed son and also come from a multiracial family. Through our experiences, we've seen how quickly culture and language of the minority culture gets lost and how that impacts a sense of belonging to one side of one's family. We don't want that to happen to our son. So we are thinking of relocating to Taiwan so he can identify as Taiwanese. However, here in Taiwan, mixed-race children are still not as common, and I know he would constantly field questions about his background and his looks. I think it might be easier to fit in in the United States. I know Seattle has a much bigger Asian population than much of the United States, so perhaps there you would so perhaps there you did not feel so different. Unfortunately, where we live in Florida, there are not many Asian people. End of email. Yeah. So there's a big difference I have experienced uh, being in Seattle. It wasn't this way when I was young. When I was, you know, in the 70s and 80s, when I was growing up, I got constant comments, in, even in Seattle. But now, ever since, I don't know, the year 2000-ish, 
I stopped getting comments about my name, about my eyes, about, oh, you look like you're not, you know, what are you? Where, where are you from? You know, those kinds of comments. I don't get them in Seattle, uh, hardly at all anymore. But as soon as I step outside of Seattle and, and as soon as I step, you know, if I'm not in Los Angeles or San Francisco or San Diego or Portland or Sacramento, you know, these kinds of places on, on the east, on the west coast, um, even if I'm just an hour outside of Seattle, then I start getting looks, I start getting comments, I start getting jokes, I start getting questions, and um, and particularly in Florida. And I've been to Florida, and I've noticed it. It's weird. It's weird. It, so in Seattle, there aren't that many East Asian people. I, 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 get, I don't know their percentage. Let me Let me look it up. So in Seattle, it is 14% Asian and 1% Pacific Islander. So, you know, it looks and then uh, 6% mixed, which I'm guessing a lot are Asian. So I, I would just take a guess and say like one out of every five people in Seattle-ish uh, would identify as at least being part Asian. And so that's a lot of people, right? So, you know, one in five, 20%, that's a lot. So for me to walk around in Seattle, it uh, it feels uh, it still feels not great because, like I said, when I walk around in Hawaii, I feel very much at home. In Seattle, I feel more at home than I'm going to feel when I'm in Florida. Now, for those people wondering, it's like, well, what do you mean feeling at home? I mean, why does that matter? Well, it doesn't matter tremendously, but the 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 uh, thought experiment I always say is if I'm in Hawaii and I see a lot of mixed race Hapa people, I can take a pretty good guess and say that they don't hate me based on my race. I could take a now they might, you know, because certainly Hapa people could be racist. I'm Japanese. And if you're Filipino or Korean or Chinese, you have a lot of reasons to hate Japanese people based on historical wars and atrocities. But generally speaking, when I am around other Hapa people or even around Asian people, I can generally assume that they're going to be um, nice to me uh, based on my race and that they're not going to be mean to me based on my race. Okay. When I'm around white people, I- I'm going to take a guess and say that most white people are not going to discriminate against me, but I'm less sure of that, right? So if I'm around, if I see a hundred white people, I'm going to just take a guess and say eh, five of them have some pretty deep-seated racist attitudes about who I am as a person, maybe more. I don't know. If I'm around a 100 Asian or Hapa people, I'm going to say less than one of them is going to be hateful to me based on the color of my skin or my heritage. So when I walk around in Seattle and I don't see that many white people, then my gauge of my threat level is at a certain level. When I walk around Hawaii, my gauge uh, of threat is very low. When I walk around Seattle, my gauge is, you know, medium. I'm like, well, I see a lot of white people and, you know, there's a percentage of them that hate me. You know, they look at me or when I ask them a question because I need something from them. Um, you know, the fact that I'm being treated badly, is that based on the fact that it's race or some other reason? Now, when I'm walking around in Florida and I see hardly any East Asian people, then the chance of me being discriminated against and treated unfairly goes up dramatically than if I was walking around in Hawaii. And so that's what I mean. And if you are of privilege, you know, if you're a white person, then 
you don't have to think about that generally. Now, if you hung around in, say, Harlem, Manhattan, and you see hardly any white people, then I bet you anything you have a little bit of a worry there because you imagine that, well, there's all these black people. There's a greater percentage that someone in this crowd hates me because I'm white. Now, that usually gets uh, suppressed as like, well, I don't want to be racist, and people try to get rid of those fears. But those are the feelings that people have. But if you're a white person living in a white community, then you have the luxury and the privilege of never having to worry about that. So that's what I mean by that. Um, so, Laura, you're asking some questions about your own child. Your own child is, is mixed race. And I've, and I've gotten this question a lot from clients, honestly. And, yeah, uh, mixed-race people are ostracized around the world. So if you go to Taiwan, so it sounds like your kid is maybe half Taiwan, half white, or at least part part Taiwan, part white, then you go to Taiwan, and, yeah, you're going to experience racism from Taiwanese people against mixed-race people. It happens. Take it from me as a half-Asian person. When I go to Japan, I don't feel comfortable. I don't don't, – Japanese people – have just as much uh, likelihood, if not more, honestly, about discriminating against me than people in the United States. So it's it's not friendly. Mixed race people, there's no friendly place aside from Hawaii, <laughs> if you are Hapa, honestly. Um, there's exceptions to the rule, of course. But, but the question here that I get a lot from clients is, you know, how do I help my child have a sense of their full identity? Because if we raise our kid in Florida... They're not going to know any other Taiwanese people, maybe not even other Asian people. And this is what happened to me. So my uh, parents, my dad's Japanese, and my mom is European-American, and we grew up in a community. um, It's called Sammamish now. We called it Issaquah when I was growing up. There were hardly any Asian people, any brown people. I, I, I went in my school. We didn't have a single black person in my in my grade. And probably up until junior high, there wasn't another Asian person, I don't think, either. I might have been the only person of color in my entire grade growing up. So just think about that. That's just off the top of my head, but I I think that's true. Uh, Junior high, high school, there was a couple other people that were added to the mix, but, you know, it was pretty stark. And for me to be half Japanese was very exotic. Now, today, I imagine in Seattle area schools, if someone was half white, half East Asian, I imagine it wouldn't be all that exotic. But back in the 70s, it was very exotic. And Japanese particularly because we were recently at war with the United States. I mean, there were many people who remembered, who were alive at the time, and remembered the, you know, the yellow, evil Japanese threat, particularly on the West Coast. And so... So, uh, but anyway, so my dad, my parents ran into this question, you know, how do we help our half Japanese kids identify with their Japanese culture while we are living in a white suburban area? Um, It's hard to do, uh, but here are the options. So you can obviously move to a community where there's more of that. You can move to Taiwan. You could move to the West Coast. You could move to... Uh, Los Angeles, for example, and and find a lot of half Taiwanese people. 
you could learn the language. You could force the kids to learn the language. That's tough, though, you know, because, um, you know, kids don't necessarily want to learn the language. So that's a whole fight you have to take on. You can go to Taiwanese or East Asian festivals. Um, my parents would do this all the time. We would go to Obon and we would go to other Japanese festivals and you hear the, you know, the taiko drums and other kinds of uh, things. You can have contact with relatives. That's a big one that my family, that's, so for me and when growing up, uh, the, the one of the biggest things that kept me in connection with my Japanese heritage was contact with relatives. You know, my my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, uh, because they were. You know, we sort of supported each other, and we took pride in the fact that we were holding. It was sort of like you weren't a real Honda or Honda, as we say, unless you exhibited a certain. Japanese signaling, if that made any sense, you know, like you had to eat rice or gohan all the time. You had to love sushi. You had to love uh, pickled plums. <laughs> you had to love seaweed. You had to know certain. You had to use chopsticks or ohashi well. Um, and uh, well, that's another thing that my dad did actually is. Uh, there was one day I was, I don't know, probably six years old or something, and I wanted to go out and play. And my, set, my dad said, you can go out to play after. And he took this jar of, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? Buttons, <laughs> you know, shirt buttons, extra buttons that fall off shirts and whatnot. My mom had a big jar full of them. And he dumped that on the kitchen table and he gave me ohashi, which, you know, chopsticks. And he said, um, after you put all these buttons uh, in the jar, then you can go out and play. And I was like, oh, because I didn't know how to use Ohashi very well. And when, by the time, uh, you know, I took a half an hour of putting all the buttons into, and, you know, my dad helped me. He said, you know, here's how you hold the chopsticks, blah, blah, blah. Now, my dad didn't have to do that, right? There were plenty of forks. And even in Japanese restaurants, they will, they will give the gringos forks. So, <laughs> Uh, there are, or what we call hakujin in, in Japanese, <laughs> white people. Um, so uh, I didn't need to learn chopsticks. I didn't need to learn how to use ohashi. But my dad said, this is part of our culture, and I want you to look like a proper Japanese person. And I, I'm not going to have one of my sons not be able to use ohashi well. And I took it very seriously to the point where uh, and in my family, it was a real point of pride, like the, the ability to pick up real soft tofu cubes. You know, if, if you've had miso soup, you might see, uh, you know, tofu cubes in your soup, and they're very soft and fragile. Well, the, the ability to pick up one of those with chopsticks is a very delicate art. <laughs> and if you can do that, that in my family, we took a lot of pride in that. So, so that's one thing you can do with your kids is, is you know, think about what is it to be Taiwanese and try to piece it together for your kid. Now, the thing I'll say before going on with other tips is there might just be a loss. Like you are, your kids are part Taiwanese and you want your kids to identify with Taiwanese culture. You want them to have pride in Taiwanese culture. It might be really hard to do that. 
Uh, if you went to Taiwan, you might want the kids to identify with their European American culture. It's going to be hard to do that. It's just it's just a very hard task, and so part of it is letting yourself off the hook a little bit because. There's a lot of jobs that you have to get done as a parent, and maybe this is one that needs to not be prioritized based on other priorities. But there are th- some things you can do. The other thing is foods. Uh, that's a biggie in my family, and I'm hungry just thinking about Japanese-American food, is to uh, introduce your children to Taiwanese, pure Taiwanese food and the words for the food and, and the principles of Taiwanese food. That's a big one because everyone eats and everyone loves to eat good food. And so if your kids love Taiwanese food, that's a big deal. It, I consider it to be kind of like soul food. Like for me, so there's Japanese food and then there's Japanese American food. And, and the two are really quite different. And Japanese Americans like spam, for example. And people in Japan hate spam, generally speaking, and people outside of Japanese-American culture in the United States, they're not so fond of spam. Although you, you will find some people that love spam, some white people really have a soul food experience with spam. But for Japanese-Americans and Hawaiians, spam is a big deal. And uh, it's when you think about spam, it's disgusting. <laughs> when you look at spam, it's disgusting. But man... When I see spam at at you know Christmas or Thanksgiving, and that's the other thing, like at Thanksgiving, and my mouth is watering thinking about it, we will have spam musubi. It's like spam sushi, and that's one of the only things I can make is spam musubi. So, think about foods. You know what is soul food in Taiwan, and really getting that introduced to your kids early so that. They love Taiwanese food and get them started early because trying to get them to eat it when they're 18 is going to be a little harder. Um, for example, I have nieces and nephews who are very much into Japanese, even though they're a quarter. So, I, you know, the next generation after me, they're all quarter, generally speaking, quarter Japanese. And some of them are very much into Japanese culture food wise and some of them are not. And so that had to do with parents, you know, f- kind of forcing it down their kids' throats. <laughs> but if you start them early, then this is normal food to them. You know, anyway, other things are traditions. Like in my family, we celebrated from the day I was born, Boys' Day. So in Japan, you have Boys' Day, and then later they added Girls' Day. And we still celebrate Boys' Day and Girls' Day in my family. And there's a there's a certain tradition with the carp and gifts and there's things, but you do that and it's another thing. So in Taiwan, they they're probably there's like probably a Taiwanese uh, New Year's uh, Day, and there's probably a Taiwanese you know there's probably a whole slew of Taiwanese holidays that uh, you could introduce into your family. It gets a little hard because their friends aren't following it, but you know if you if you introduce it early. When the kids are three and four, they don't know that it's weird. And so it becomes part of their life. And And you'll see kids, when you do that early, when you start them early, they get bummed out if you don't do it when they're older. So especially if there are gifts involved. <laughs> Another thing is movies. For me, watching Japanese and generally just speaking East Asian movies really strikes a chord with me. I went through uh, a phase where uh, Akira Kurosawa, Japanese, um, he's sort of the, I don't know, the Francis Ford Coppola of Japan. And I went through a phase where I watched all the Criterion editions and the, the you know, the, what do you call it? The, when they talk over <laughs> the movies, the commentary. And I f- 
not only loved Akira Kurosawa's movies, but I felt like I was being, I felt like I was honoring my Japanese heritage by absorbing the art. Um, my dad is an artist, and so we will talk about um, you know Japanese American artists and and the style of Japanese Americans, and so so artwork, movies, uh, all those kinds of things can also help. Um, also travel. So travel as much as you can to Taiwan. If you go every couple years to Taiwan, there's a pretty good chance that your kids will have a, a, a sense of who they are and where they where they that that part of their identity and have some pride in it. Anyway, uh, let's go on to another email. So this next email is from Lisa. She writes, Members of the Hapa community can sometimes be at risk, especially boys with Asian mothers and white fathers. Some of these young men end up despising themselves for their Asian side. There have been many violent acts of gun violence in America, like Elliot Roger. End of email. Right, so if some of you know about Elliot Roger. He was half Asian, half white American. And he was uh, very insecure, clearly, and very angry about the fact that it was hard for him to find a romantic partner and seemingly internalized racism. So so there's a lot of things that I could say about this, but in brief, there are uh, – it's complicated. So for me – and my siblings, we grew up, like I said, in an all-white community. And there was racism for sure. And there was some internalized racism. Like I, as a young person, didn't like my nose. I thought that my nose looked too Asian. It was too small. I wanted a pointy nose like a white person. So I definitely had uh, internalized racism that was, you know, not healthy and and. You'll see a lot of people, particularly women who will beat themselves up about how they look, you know, if their skin is too dark or something. And uh, certainly for sure. But having said all that, I did not have a lot of internalized racism. So how did that happen? I did not hate myself for the fact that I was Japanese. And in fact, in some ways, I I really took pride. I really thought like to be half Japanese, half Half white was some kind of superpower in some ways. Um, so how did that happen? How, how does how does that happen for me and my siblings differently than for other people? Well, I think it has to do with the way you're raised, and I think it has to do with your community. Like I said, I'd certainly experienced racism in, in my community, but it wasn't that bad, at least from my memory. There were microaggressions for sure. You know, where are you from? Why does your face look like that? Your eyes are slanty. Um, you know, ooh, you speak such good English for uh, a Japanese person. You know, whatever. But overall, it wasn't it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And I think that for some people, it gets much worse. Um, so I think it's circumstantial, and I think that families can do a lot to help um, by helping kids to understand and situationalize racism. I have a, I have some memories of my parents helping me sift through racist messages in my in our society. I, I have memories of of my dad saying things like, "Don't let 
white people put you down. You know, don't don't let racism get under your skin because you should be proud of who you are, that kind of stuff. And my parents modeled a lot of that. You know, my my dad took a lot of pride in being Japanese. And my mom didn't put Japanese people down. So so I think, you know, I think there's a lot of things you can do. Um, having said that, there's only so much you can do as, as, as a family, particularly if, you know, if you have complicated feelings about your own race, that's going to affect things. But anyway, so regarding Elliot Roger, yeah, I, I did a whole deep dive. You can actually listen to it. I made it a long time ago, but I think it still holds up. It's called The Psychology of Elliot Roger. Um, I, th- it's, I think it came out like six or seven years ago. It was soon after the event. If you don't know who he is, he was one of the mass shooters that um, kind of got the ball rolling on copycats. But anyway, and he's also considered a hero in certain Internet groups because he is he's kind of the poster child for incel or MGTOW people. In other words, for for men online who think that feminism is ruining our country. And so a lot of people consider it in a very problematic way, Elliot Roger to be a hero. But anyway, so listen to that whole episode. There's a couple episodes that I made about it. Anyway, point is, is that Elliot Roger, in my, my conceptualization, his, his Hoppe status was not a major factor in the reason why he killed a bunch of people. His, and uh, anyway, so... But can people be bullied because of their race and can that bullying affect how they feel about the world and possibly taking revenge on the world? For sure. But I I think it's a small issue because there's a lot of bullied people and there's a lot of targets of racism in the world. And a very, 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 very small percentage of those people end up committing atrocities like Elliot Roger. And we can point to a lot of white people who didn't experience racism of any kind. Maybe they experienced bullying, but they didn't experience racism, and they also committed atrocities. So, so yeah, I, I did. I recently did an episode on the differences between Asian American men and women. I would just refer to that. Um, but for the sake of time, let's move on. Patron Cat writes in. It's a bit of a longer email, but it's worth reading. I am a Filipino woman married to a white man. He is not racist, but certain things have become problematic recently. Add to that the odd racism in our COVID-19 culture, and I've become more preoccupied with racism in our society. His cousin, who added me on Facebook, discussed his support of the Confederate flag on Facebook. I aggressively debated him, and we got into mask-wearing and racism topics, and I told him to read some peer-reviewed journals— He did let me know that he was surprised that I was such a bee since he'd heard that I was a sweet Filipina and he said that I set a bad example for my culture. I called him an idiot and a racist. Another person, a friend of my husband, referred to Asians as zipper heads. Alcohol was involved. He quickly told me, well, not like you. You know what I mean. Since then, I've told my husband that I'd prefer not to spend my precious free time with racists because I have no issues telling my friends and family to go piss up a rope. (laughs) I like that phrase, piss up a rope. My husband will often tell me afterwards to not think about the racist incident and to not let it bother me. He says I should be more tactful, 
But I try to explain that Asian Americans have historically been very tactful with how we handle racism, but those days might be over. I wonder if I'm being too aggressive. My husband thinks I should just do more to make friends and influence people subtly. I am literally the only Asian within our social circle and need some more perspective. Help me out. End of email. Yeah, it's rough. Racism sucks. Um, and yeah, I've been there. I've been there before. I've been, you know, in an all-white group, and they forget that I'm I'm not white, and they'll start talking racist crap about any group, particularly Asians, and then one of them will look at me, oh, you know, not you. I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, my God. And it is, um, yeah, it's upsetting. I'm sorry you're going through that. And... If you live in a racist pocket, man, God help you. I don't live in a racist pocket. There are very few people. In fact, I wonder if anyone in my social circle it has those overtly racist attitudes. In my social circle, um, at least half, if not more, are people of color. I don't know if that's just because it's Seattle or just because it's me. or I don't know. But, um, you know, like on this podcast – we are a person of color podcast. We have me, and then we have Umberto, who's Colombian. Uh, Bob is white. Rebecca is gay. Um, so, and in the distant past, we had other people of color co-hosts. But the point is, is that I can't imagine what it's like for you, patron cat, to, to be a Filipina and just experience that kind of racism. It's just, it's just awful. So your question is, you know, are you being too aggressive? I don't know. I can't tell, you know, and that from your description. And the larger question is like, okay, what is too aggressive? And when is it better to be aggressive? And when is it better to, quote unquote, make friends and influence people? You know, I don't know. I really don't know. I do not know the answer to that question. And I don't feel like I'm very good at navigating that. Because there are times when I will absolutely be quiet and not say a thing i will hear uh i will hear you know it, a year ago i was in a i was in a social group of i don't know about 15 different white guys and um and they were using the n-word and i didn't say a thing because i didn't know these guys very well and it, I didn't. I'd never encountered that before i haven't i haven't heard the n-word in person <laughs> Since I was probably like 20 years old. I mean, it's been 30 years probably since I heard the N-word used in a malicious manner or a casual manner. And when I heard him say, I was like, what? I mean, how is this happening right now? And I didn't say anything and, and I feel guilty about that. But that's what I did. Self-preservation, I guess. And there are other times when, yeah, I come out real strong against people, um, people in my own family, not just about racism, but about homophobia, about transphobia. I'll, I'll come out real strong against people in my own family when they say stuff. I'll just be like, uh, what you just said is ridiculous. <laughs> like, uh, and and I, I'm not articulate because I'm angry. And, so I, and I don't walk away from those incidents going like, yay, Kirk, what a great job. So I don't know what to do, man. Like, the you know, we would hope that 
there would be something we could do that would influence other people, that would change their mind. Because that's, that's what we're hoping for ultimately, right? But then there's this other side of if you are a Filipina and you're experiencing racism, then you have every right to be hurt and angry. And so even if it's, it's not functional, so to speak, to it's not changing anyone's mind to be aggressive, quote-unquote, you still deserve to vent rational feelings. If someone punches you in the face in public uh, and, and you punch them back, is that going to change their mind from their behavior? Probably not, right? If someone punches you and you punch them back, I, I don't know if you're changing their behavior, but you certainly deserve to punch them back. Um, now, some could argue about the morality of that, but you know, if, if someone gets in your face and starts pushing you, you have a you have a right to push back. And if someone is is using violent language, violent racist language against you, you have every right to use aggressive language back, telling them to f off, telling calling them a racist, calling them an idiot. Uh, I've been there before. Oh boy, have I been there before? <laughs> I've lost my stuff, and I have. I have said uh, some real nasty things to people. I tend to actually, when, when I'm pushed into a corner, I tend to try to be superior in some ways. It's, it's not a good look, but I'll tend to say something like, well, you really have no idea what you're talking about. I know, I know I'm upset and, and real flooded when I, when I say that statement. You have no idea what you're talking about. So it's sort of a superior m move on my part. I'm not proud of it, but there are times when I feel like it's justified. I don't know the answer. I don't know. I don't know the right thing. And so, Kat, when you ask, am I being too aggressive? Um, should I just swallow it? I'm the only Asian. I, I hear these things. There are Facebook posts from my husband's cousin. The, and then the whole other topic is what should your husband be doing? Uh, from the sound of it, I would say he's not being a good husband. Honestly, because if my wife was going through something like this, I'd be like, I'm on your side and I'm never I'm not I'm not as a white person. I'm never going to tell you what to do. So if you want to yell back at someone, I'll, I'm right there by your side. If, if you want to be friendly, I'm going to be right. there. What do you want to do? That's what a good white husband should do, by the way, like to tell a person of color to shut up and to be nice and to be a nice placating Asian sweet person is piling on the racism. So I don't know uh, your husband, but from the sound of it, I, I don't know how good of an ally he's being. I mean, just think about it. If, if someone, if, if you had, okay, so there's, there's two different, I'm going to start off with the broader topic. Under any circumstance, everyone should speak out against racism, right? Everyone should, regardless of anything. Okay. If you have a person of color who you're married to, particularly, you should stick up for that person. This person is your spouse. If, if your spouse can't depend on, if, Kat, if you can't depend on your husband to stick up for you, which it sounds like he kind of does, but not in an overt manner, then you can't depend on anybody. the The right thing, to, the moral thing to do, and the chivalrous thing to do, is for the husband 
to be more aggressive than you as a person who is privileged, as the family member, as the white person in the room. You should be you should be the first person to say like, whoa, 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 uh, Confederate flag, racist, and my wife is, you know, not white. So tone it down, cousin. Or you know, racist statements being said about Filipino people. The white person, the white spouse should be the first person to be like, whoa, 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 uncool. Not cool. If you want to think that stuff, okay, I guess. But you're not going to say that in front of me. My wife is a wonderful Filipina woman. And if you're going to disrespect my wife, then this friendship is over, pal. So shape up or ship out. Like, stick up for people. Now, it's hard because he's, you know, a white person in a white culture and he might be ostracized. And that's, you know, that's just the, the difficult choice. There's no way to win is the point. Do you swallow it? Do you placate? Do you try to be nice? Do you be aggressive? Do you silence yourself? Do you, you know, do you avoid, you know, there's no, there's no way to win because racism is all encompassing and all harming. And there's, there's nothing you can do to walk away a winner. And so what do you do? Aggression, make friends, silence, do something, advocate, be a good ally. You know, we can debate the right course of action under any given circumstance, but to it's false to believe that there's a path to wellness because we have a sick society. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Let me know what you think about the things I've been talking about. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.